This is episode 62 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Yvette McCoy. Uh, She was back on episode 7 when she came to talk about how to advocate for the tools to do your job effectively. And today she's back again. She is the owner of Speakwell Solutions. It is a private practice in Leonardtown, Maryland. She specializes in adult communication disorders and swallowing disorders and has an extensive training in assessment of swallowing disorders and holds the designation of board certified swallowing specialist from the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. She also is trained in the area of fees and the MBS IMP and also in accent reduction. She has received seven ACE awards and is an adjunct instructor at the University of Maryland in College Park. And just quickly, before we get to the episode, I want to let everybody know about this incredible, incredible, incredible giveaway we're going to be doing. In honor and celebration of hitting half a million downloads, I've basically collected all of my friends and pretty much everybody that has been on this podcast so far that is putting on a course or offering something and I've begged and pleaded them to share that with you guys. So we are going to be doing this in this giveaway over on Instagram. So follow me, Teresa Richard, SLP, and I'm still working out the final details now, but just a heads up, we have a free registration to MDTP, a free registration to a new medical SLP symposium that's going to be held in Baltimore in March. Um, a free registration to another medical SLP conference that's going to be in Nashville in February. What else? I've got like 12 different prizes that we're going to be giving away at this point. So um, head over to Instagram, follow me, Teresa Richard SLP, and in the next couple days, maybe week, I will start to be giving all that good stuff away. So again, thank all of you for helping us to make it to half a million downloads. That's insane. Hope you enjoy this episode. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. I would like to thank Plural Publishing for sponsoring this episode. And our guest Yvette is going to be talking about her awesome new project that she's been working on with them. Um, And if you are interested in purchasing her book, you can go to pluralpublishing.com and use promo code AP2013 to receive 15% off. So just keep that in mind when you hear about her awesome new project at the end of this episode. Hello, Yvette. Hi there. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show and doing it. I'm excited to be here. I'm just kind of on a high right now because I just recorded the intro for today's episode and we hit half a million downloads last week, which is insane for a little podcast about swallowing disorders. That's amazing. That means it was crazy. Wonderful work, Teresa. Well, thank you. And I couldn't do it without you, wonderful people. So anyway, so this episode, so the whole premise of this podcast is about swallowing disorders, but what I wanted Yvette to come on and talk about is more 
what actually is normal swallowing. And as a lot of us do, we all work with, a lot of us work with geriatrics, older population, and what is considered the normal aging swallow versus what so many of us for so long deemed an impaired swallow. So before we really dive into that, why don't you tell the people who you are? Well, I'm Yvette McCoy. I have a private practice um, in Southern Maryland, down in Leonardtown, Maryland. And I am adjunct instructor at the University of Maryland. I teach the dysphagia course there in the advanced dysphagia seminar um, at the university in College Park. So that takes about most of my time. I'm a mom of three and I've got two fur babies and I'm busy (laughs) all the time. Yes, yes. And what you said was you also teach the advanced dysphagia seminar. What did I say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just saying that's the coolest thing ever. I know. <laughs> There's so many. I just learned that a recent program here in my area just decreased their dysphagia course to only three weeks. So that's all these people get. Yeah. Yeah. No, that doesn't surprise me at all. It's a fight to yeah. Yeah. kind of change the culture as it relates to dysphagia education. But I think, you know, we have a responsibility to really, you know, we talk about advocating for our for our patients, we really have to advocate for ourselves too, somewhat within our own profession. And, you know, it's just not enough to have a dysphagia course for three credits or two credits and expect these kids to go out and learn and go out and work and know what they're supposed to know. It's it's not realistic. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that not only you have an intro course, but you also have an advanced course. So I love, love, love hearing that. Thank you. All right. So where should we start today, Miss Yvette? Well, you know, if you want to talk about the aging swallow, I do, you know, I enjoy talking about the aging swallow quite often because I think that, you know, so often we see old age as a disease and really it's not. And so, you know, we, most of our clinicians are working in skilled nursing facilities. Most of the clinicians that treat dysphagia are working in skilled nursing facilities. So so they're seeing the elderly population for the majority of their day. And so I think it's important for us as clinicians to be able to really identify between presbyphagia, which is a normal, healthy, elderly swallow, and dysphagia, and when presbyphagia kind of crosses into dysphagia. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's kind of dive into some of the specifics of what, you know, what are some of the characteristics of presbyphagia? You know, the elderly present with a lot of complex medical issues, and sometimes that insidious onset of dysphagia can be overshadowed by more overt medical issues. And sometimes when older people start to experience swallow difficulty, they they might associate it with the natural aging process, but really there are very, very distinct characteristics that can be associated with the elderly swallow. And, you know, I think just knowing those and being mindful of those can really help clinicians identify when it's just presbyphagia as opposed to when it's crossing the bridge over into dysphagia. Before we go into the specific characteristics that, you know, might be prevalent for patients with presbyphagia, I really want to talk about this notion of functional reserve because, you know, traditional thinking suggests that causes of dysphagia are always disease related. And and that may not 
always be the case. More recent research has suggested that swallowing changes can occur even with healthy aging. And this research is particularly relevant when an older or healthy adult whose functional reserve or their ability to adapt to stress. And that's really what functional reserve means. It's it's the ability to adapt to any sort of um, stressors. And traditional thinking suggests that causes of dysphagia are always disease-related. And that may not always be the case. There's been a lot of research recently that suggests that swallowing changes do occur even with healthy aging. And so I think this research is particularly relevant when an older, healthy adult whose functional reserve or their ability to adapt to stress becomes naturally diminished with age. And so as these elderly are faced with increased stressors, such as system nervous system, altering medications, which we as clinicians don't really know a lot about, um, we're not very well versed on how drugs can impact dysphagia and medications. Also mechanical disruptions, such as an MG tube or trachs, Even chronic medical conditions that might not necessarily elicit dysphagia in a less vulnerable individual. So in our practice, we really should know this information because it'll help us in providing safeguards against overdiagnosis and overtreatment of dysphagia in the elderly population. Well, and I'll add, you know, I think you have such a good point about the overdiagnosis of dysphagia. And I was talking with a student earlier today because I think a lot of times that's, I feel like a lot of days yeah. that's all that I'm doing is finding patients that have been overdiagnosed with dysphagia and they really just have yeah. something else going on. And, you know, so I was talking with a student earlier today because I've just had so many patients lately that, you know, they just had a cough and so they were put on thickened liquids or just these really you know, some, they're not getting their cinnamon if they're a Parkinson's patient, things that really are not, you know, they are within our scope of practice, but other people should be aware of them also. And now all of a sudden these patients are put on restricted diets and they're dumped in our laps. And before you know it, we're doing exercises with them and wasting lots of healthcare dollars. So I think that's why this episode is so important because I want people to realize there's so many other things that go into it. Yeah, there are. And again, there are, there are so many different types of medications that can just cause cough. And when we think about the number of medications that our elderly patients are on, I mean, we, we kind of have to be a little bit of a sleuth and we have to look at the medical chart and we have to put all this information together. We have to talk to the nursing staff. You know, we have to, we have to look at the medications that they're on and how often they're receiving them and when was the last dosage given and what's the half-life of that. And I don't think that we consider that as much as we should. And that makes a huge, huge difference. I had a patient recently um, that was sent to me because she was having trouble swallowing and she was an elderly person and she had so she was just coughing and sputtering and coughing and coughing and coughing and you know I started to notice that it wasn't just happening when we were giving her something to eat or drink over you know the course of a couple sessions and I started to really investigate and look and see what medication she was taking and and we found out uh between myself and the her attending physician and her psychiatrist that it was some of those psych meds that were really causing some significant side effects 
you know, not only the cough, but a few other side effects that were very concerning. And at that point, you know, we had to decide, do do the risk outweigh the benefits? Can she stay on this medication and still have these dysphagia-like symptoms? And we decided that she had to, you know, working as a team, the physicians decided, and I obviously was in agreement that, you know, she needed to stay on the medications that we were on. And so we used compensatory strategies. And a lot of times, you know, we talk about compensating versus rehabilitation, but this is an example of where compensatory strategies may be good because the person wasn't able to come off of her medication. So we had to figure out a way for her to be able to swallow safely. That's exactly what I was telling the student this morning. You know, she's like, oh, so the answer is that we just tell the doctor to take them off their meds. And I was like, no, 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 it's never really that simple or cut and dry. It's just a lot of times bringing this information to the doctor's attention that, you know, hey, did you know that this, these psych meds or this Ativan is causing, you know, has an impact on this dysphagia and perhaps we need to change the timing or is there anything that can be done? Exactly. So I think we need more attention to medications and how they can impact or, you know, at least mimic symptoms of dysphagia. And sometimes, you know, like I said, with some of these central nervous system altering medications, the patients develop a full-on dysphagia. They really have difficulty swallowing. So some of the changes, you know, Again, that you might see in the elderly swallow, some of them are obvious. You know, for example, people have missing teeth, they have loose dentures. All of that may impact how food is prepared uh, to be swallowed. But there are other changes that might be less obvious. And and those changes can increase the effort required to swallow. And, And even in some cases, interfere with swallow safety and effectiveness. And the first thing that comes to mind when I think about changes in the elderly swallow are reduced bulk and sensitivity in the vocal cords and oral musculature. There's also reduced bulk and strength in the tongue and pharynx. These are all normal changes in the elderly swallow. These are things that we would expect to see. Decreased opening of the UES. And a longer, more dilated pharynx, okay? So generally speaking, healthy swallowing in the elderly occurs more slowly, just it, just because of the reduced bulk and sensitivity and strength in the tongue and pharynx. That's just the way things go. Things slow down a little bit, okay? But in those, in people over the age of 65, I think the initiation of laryngeal and pharyngeal events are significantly slowed, obviously relative to younger adults that are about 45 years old. But these changes, we can see these changes start a little bit earlier than, you know, what we most, that what most of us would think. We would think that some of these changes in the swallow would occur when a patient, you know, became 80 or 90. But a lot of the literature is telling us that this can happen much, much earlier. Let's just think about pharyngeal constriction, for example. If pharyngeal constriction is weak from the top to the bottom, we know that food and liquids are not going to adequately be moved from the mouth into the esophagus. This is something that we all know. So if that action is reduced or weakened in any way, we know that residue can then remain in the pharynx after the swallow. 
Okay. They're then with potential risk for penetration aspiration. And then we also know that the UES, the upper esophageal sphincter, must relax for in order for food and liquid to pass through it, right? These are things that we already know. Now, with the aging, the size of that opening may decrease and patients may complain of that bolt, that globus sensation. They may complain of food getting stuck. And so in the elderly, the critical component of the range of UES opening is also diminished. And so sometimes you can have increased pharyngeal residue that may be linked to that limited UES opening. But finally, in elderly patients, the pharynx is longer and it's more dilated than in younger individuals. And again, that's due to that reduced bulk and muscle strength. And what that means for, you know, from a clinical perspective or functionally speaking, that just means that the airway has to be protected a little bit longer in order for safe swallowing to occur. And there are, you know, there are a few other changes that we might see in the elderly. The, The ones that I just mentioned are the most common, but there are other things their, their ability to smell becomes diminished. Their brain functions just slow down a little bit. And the biggest one is the coordination of respiration and swallowing. There, you know, we know that there are certain disease processes that can be associated with dysphagia, COPD being the most common in the elderly. But again, you know, that coordination of of respiration and swallowing is something that becomes a little bit more challenging for our elderly patients. And then the increased use of prescription medication, which we've talked about, that can affect the swallow because of certain side effects. And xerostomia is typically the most common one. Uh, Coughing is, is common as well, but we know that xerostomia can have a significant impact on swallowing difficulty. And so when we think about you know, all of these things together, these things collectively, these changes will result in, in just an overall slowness in the swallowing mechanism. And we, you know, we know that the swallowing mechanism is, relies heavily upon you know, rapid, well-coordinated movements. And so when things slow down a little bit, you know, that, that leaves room for difficulty. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, we can talk about, I mean, we can divide it into three phases, the oral phase changes and the pharyngeal phase changes and the esophageal phase changes that you might see in the normal, healthy, elderly population. I think in the interest of time, you know, I'll just kind of talk to you very generally and very basically about what are some of the things that you might see in oral phase changes. The biggest ones are are reduced isometric tongue pressure. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the the maximum lingual pressures tend to remain young in magnitude. So if the, the maximum lingual pressure doesn't decline much with age, but the maximum isometric lingual pressure does. So what this suggests is that young, healthier people have a reserve capacity for tongue strength although it's not necessarily utilized during swallowing, um, that older adults just don't have that 
reserve. They have a significant decline in this reserve. So again, that goes back to that functional reserve that I talked about earlier. So healthy older individuals have reduced isometric tongue pressures. And basically what that means is the the muscular contraction against resistance when the length of the muscle remains the same. Okay, primarily because the peak lingual pressures used in swallowing are lower than those generated isometrically, um, healthy older individuals seem to manage to achieve adequate pressures necessary to affect a successful swallow. So again, the difference between maximum isometric pressure and peak swallowing pressures can be an indicator of functional reserve for swallowing in healthy older adults. So clinically, what does this mean? What is the clinical relevance here? Basically, as we get older in later years, when we most need this access to reserve, it's not there. Okay, so that, you know, that can increase risk factors for dysphagia. Okay. So what does this mean clinically? What it means clinically is that in later years, as patients get older and they really need that access to reserve, it's not there. When it's needed in response to the age-related changes that can increase risk factors for dysphagia, they just don't have access to that reserve. So they're they're slower eaters in general. They have the, the motor decline. And then sarcopenia kicks in, and we all know what sarcopenia is. So you know, we have to think about this from a clinical perspective. And when we're working with our patients, healthy older people are slower eaters than their younger counterparts. That's just the way it is. And I think these motor changes can be etiologically explained as it relates to swallow function, at least in part by the presence of sarcopenia, which we know is simply the age-related reduction in muscle mass and the number of selective muscle fibers. So strength, and functional changes in motor components of the oral pharyngeal swallow have been associated with reduction in lingual muscle composition, which takes us right back to the muscle and to the tongue being the driving force playing a huge role in swallowing function. We know that. So, but it's not abnormal to see these kinds of things in healthy elders. It's not. So we know that in terms of timing events, uh, oral transit times are slightly longer in the elderly. And most studies investigating aging effects on timing the swallow have focused on the initiation of the swallow. And there are some that are emerging that have studied timing of the entire oral phase. But generally, you know, the one takeaway that I think you want to have here is that things are slower. And that's normal. <laughs> yeah. Things are slower. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I just think right away of like, you know, I know you're talking about the oral phase, but I instantly just jump to like, you know, they had pooling in the piriform sinuses, you know, and it's like, well, what do you do? Yeah. You know, these, a lot of people just get all bent out of shape, like that pooling in the piriforms, we have to make them NPO, you know, and it's like, no, they're still, it's a completely it functional swallow. It is. I agree with you completely. And so I think, you know, that's where it's really important for us to not only look at the, you know, the kinds of medications that the patients are on or some of these, you know, synthesis changes, but 
think about the patient as a whole. I mean, if you have an elderly patient that is ambulatory, that's getting around, uh, that's moving around, you know, that's those are all things that are going to work in their favor, even though they may be getting around a little slower and their swallowing function is a little slower. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate or it's going to move or as we say, cross the bridge into dysphagia. So that's another thing that we need to look at. There are a few pharyngeal phase changes that can occur. And uh, Dr. Humbert has done some work on this, but there's some slowed laryngeal vestibule closure. There's decreased maximum hyolaryngeal excursion. And again, you know, the hyolaryngeal excursion, we know that, that through the superior movement is less important than the anterior movement. So we want to make sure that we're getting good anterior movement. And so as long, if the, if the hyolaryngeal excursion is a little bit decreased, if they're getting good anterior movement, you know, moving that hyoid bone is moving up forward, then that's, you know, more important. Yeah. And so there's a slowed UES opening time. These are things that we've just talked about earlier. But again, and those and people over the age of 65, these are all things that we would expect to see. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So when we think about, you know, presbyphagia really crossing over to dysphagia. The potential for developing dysphagia does become increasingly more common with advancing age, but dysphagia itself, we know it's not a disease. It's a symptom of one or more underlying pathophysiologies. And so older people are more vulnerable to dysphagia, again, as a result of this decreased functional reserve. And I keep going back to that decreased functional reserve because it's so important. I think it's one of the key factors that I tend to look at when I'm deciding, you know, is this presbyphagia or is this dysphagia? And so we really have to look at the entire patient and see what what is their function? Do they have a lot of functional reserve? What is their ability to adapt to stressors? Because if you have an elderly person with COPD, who develops pneumonia and um, maybe a UTI at the same time, that, you know, that's a lot on their immune system at once. So that's going to decrease their functional reserve, which again, they may develop dysphagia of some sort. And so I think when I think about presbyphagia kind of crossing over into dysphagia, I always go back to the notion of, the, of, de, of decreased functional reserve and not having access to that reserve when it's needed. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Totally. I love the way you just worded that. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of, I think that's a huge question is, and I know that sometimes I have to think of that too, when, you know, I'm looking at these patients like, well, all these things are kind of within normal limits for the aging swallow, but at what point does it cross over into dysphagia yeah so i think when 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 their functional reserve is so decreased that they're just not able to compensate for any sort of you know physiological decline yeah i think that's when it crosses over yeah i love it you know another thing that i do think it's that is very important 
and I know most of us do this as well, but I think, you know, we have to really collaborate with other professionals. And sometimes we don't yes, as much as we should, but especially the dietitian. Yes. And I think, you know, part of the goals of a multi multidisciplinary presbyphagia dysphagia team, you know, part of the goal is to, to identify patients who may be, who have dysphagia and identify them early because I think early diagnosis is a key factor in older adults to, so that you avoid further complications that may occur as a result of that decreased functional reserve. Again, I'm going back to that. But you, wanna, you want to get with the multidisciplinary team. You want to get with the dietitian. You want to make sure that the patient's nutritional needs are being met, that there's not any overreaching, generalized uh, weakness that could impact, again, this ability to access their reserve. And then think about what are the biomechanical events that are really responsible for causing this functional dysphagia. I mean, if we really investigate, if we really pay attention, we're going to come up with the reason why this presbyphagia has now made its way to dysphagia. Yes, beautiful. But part of that is, you know, working with a team and working together. I think there's like, I don't know why, but it's just almost like SLPs are like scared to go talk to our other counterparts. You know, I feel like I've been to a few buildings lately and I'm like, have you asked the doctor? They're like, well, I don't, I'm not going to talk to the doctor. Or, have you asked the dietitian? Well, no, I don't really, I don't want to ask her, you know, but we have to, like, it's not even about us. It's about the patient. So. Well, and, and we all have different roles to play in the care of the patient and each piece I think is very important in terms of helping, you know, put the puzzle together. Yeah, absolutely. Don't forget about the most multidisciplinary team. I mean, if I could say yes. one thing that we need to, we, we need to not be afraid to talk to uh, the other medical professionals involved in the patient's care. I know that, you know, they can be intimidating sometimes, but one of the things that I tell my students is that when they consult us, they're consulting us because they're not sure what to do next. So they're looking for guidance from you. Yeah. Yeah. So don't, you know, don't be afraid to share your knowledge because you are the professional who knows about dysphagia. And so you know more about swallowing disorders than they do. Right. So your input is very important, but it takes a team approach. I had an SLP this morning tell me that the GI doctor, she referred a patient to a GI doctor and the GI called and said, what exactly are you looking for with this patient? And she was like, why is he calling me? He's a doctor. He should know. And it's like, well, you're the one that sent the patient with a specific referral. So embrace that relationship. <laughs> yeah. So tell the doctor why you sent them and what you're looking for specifically. Yes. So Yvette, I know you mostly, you work in outpatient mostly. And I know that a lot of this, that what we've been talking about is very relatable to like skilled nursing in the hospitals, as far as the doctors and the dietitians that work in those facilities. But what are other professionals that you collaborate with in an outpatient setting? Um, ENT. Yeah. Yeah, the most. Uh, probably ENT the most. And then I would say uh, GI is second. 
And and are they referring their patients to you or are you usually referring them out to them or is it a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. I, I receive probably 75 to 80% of my referrals from ENTs. And then I'm referring usually out to GI. I don't get a, I don't get many referrals from GI, but I, I refer to them. Yeah. Consequently, I'm on the phone with GI docs quite a bit. Yeah. Well, good. So in summary, there's some points that I think are important to remember. Presbyphagia might deteriorate to dysphagia in some elderly, but not all of them. Okay. So just because you're older and slower doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to end up with dysphagia. And that the diagnosis that the patient has may be obscured by multiple comorbidities. So if a patient is exhibiting signs of dysphagia, you have to think about what was going on with the patient prior. Yeah. You have to think about their premorbid condition. And then yeah. you, want to, you have to review their history carefully, their medications, cranial nerve exam is important, and nutritional assessment. It's, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the dietitian come in. It just collaborate with the, the, the dietitian should be next to the respiratory therapist, should be one of your best friends. And again, and I know we talk about this a lot, and I know you've talked about it a lot in your podcast, but instrumental assessment is a must to determine, yes. just to determine the specific path of physiology and form treatment goals. I mean, so that you can have focused intervention. And again, asking the right questions of the multidisciplinary team can be key in identifying swallowing problems in, in our elderly. I just want to go back to what you said about the dietitian. I know it's I know it's so important and I know some buildings that I go to I have such a good relationship with the dietitian there and it just makes things so much easier. But I I had just had a family that I was working with yesterday and in the hospital they made the patient NPO, the SLP made the patient NPO, but then no one came in and saw the patient for 5 days. So the patient was just told not to eat for 5 days and then was transferred to this nursing facility. So obviously a lot of things fell through the cracks, but once even the dietitian got a hold of him, it's like, no wonder this patient's been so weak and been going downhill. He's hasn't had any nutrition in five days. So, yeah. So I, you know, once the dietitian got on board and plus the SLP got a hold of everything that was actually going on, this patient made a miraculous recovery. Well, and that, you know, I, nutrition in the aging population is is a whole nother issue. You know, that's there's so many things that can impact nutrition in in the elderly. I mean, simple things that we may not even think about, like distractions while they're eating, te- like the television being on or or you know the phone ringing, and they they have a limited ability to prepare food. So unless somebody's bringing them food or preparing their food for them, you know, it could be a problem. They might not be able to meet all their nutritional needs. Even if they're, you know, I'm thinking now even functionally, if they have limited hand mobility, getting hand to mouth, which is more OT. But I mean, these are things that, that we have to consider. Poor eyesight, fatigue being a factor. There are so many problems related to diet and nutrition in the aging population that I think 
you know, it, it, it can have a, a bearing on a patient's quality of life. So it's so important to include the dietitian or the nutritionist or whatever they're called in your facility. It's so, so very important to include them in the care uh, of the patient. Beautiful. All right. So Yvette has a new special project that I wanted her to come on and tell us all about and tell us a little bit about it. And then I'll ask you some more questions. So excited about this. Yay! I think, you know, this has just been such a long time coming and it was such a labor of love for me to do this. But coming in the next couple of weeks, the Adult Dysphagia Pocket Guide from Neuroanatomy to Clinical Practice will be released. Um, It's published by Plural Publishing. And it's just, you know, when I thought about this, what I, I thought about what I would have wanted to use as a younger clinician. I mean, even as a seasoned clinician, sometimes we're, we're so busy and we move so fast that we just, you know, we don't have time to go back and look at a textbook or we don't have time to go back and look at that PowerPoint presentation or those notes from that webinar. If I had something that I could just reference quickly and easily when I was doing my, um, you know, clinical swallow exams, I think it would make my life a lot easier. So I tried to develop something like that. Yes. It's, it's portable and it's designed specifically for a dysphagia clinician, and it centers primarily on the application of normal and abnormal swallowing physiology, you know, as that relates to cranial nerves, but it also merges this clinical neurophysiology of the swallow directly to assessment and treatment to provide quick access of key clinical information and solutions for, for clinicians as they're doing their swallowing assessments. And so I think another unique piece to this is that there's a discussion of lab values and medication in chapters three and four and how they can impact dysphagia. It just, I think it adds another layer of, of uniqueness to this guide that, you know, we haven't seen. Yeah, absolutely. I just love that you're, you're starting, I love the, what it's called, what do you call it? The tagline from neuroanatomy to clinical practice, yeah. because I think that's where we've lost so many people. I, I know there's a large amount of the neuro nerds out there. I know you're one of the self-proclaimed ones, but there's so many neuro nerds. And then there's just the ones that just want to see patients. And whenever someone mentions neuro, they freak mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, and, and I, I hate when, you know, patients elicit or SLPs elicit entire case history and someone will say, well, what's the neurodiagnosis? Well, I don't know. You know, so I love, you know, I'm all about digestible bites of information. So I love that you're presenting how to go from A to B here. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said um, digestive bites of information, because we have throughout the guide recurring clinicians notes and research to practice boxes and and they're based on the current research and they provide practical and useful tips for clinicians so what we're trying to do is take the research and apply it clinically yeah yeah i love it um so let's talk a little bit more about like you said there are some lab values some medications i love that you're including all of that because i know people ask you know, we have just some summaries in the medical SLP solution about stuff like that, but I love that you're really diving into it more because it does give us so much more information about our patient 
than we otherwise wouldn't have had. Yeah. Well, I want to emphasize that this is not a textbook. Okay. Yes. This is, this is a quick reference that you can carry around with you. I think it's only four by four and a half by eight. It's small. But what we try to do in chapter one is just cover a basic neurophysiology review. The three levels of nervous system organization, the neural control of swallowing, the cranial nerve divisions, and then motor performance and swallowing. And then we dive right into chapter two. We're looking at the anatomy and, and physiology. We're looking at muscles of the swallow, their action, their innervation, and clinical relevance. Okay, so we're not just telling you what these muscles are and um, looking at their cranial nerve innervation. We're diving into the clinical relevance, and we really look at anatomy and physiology from a more clinical perspective as well. And then chapter three, um, we really talk about lab values the entire chapter. And we're looking at, um, it's divided into two parts. Part one is nutrition. And then part two is, is blood chemistry lab values. And again, we divided it into two because we talk about how important nutrition is in the elderly, but it is, it's important in general. And so um, we thought that the chapter three should be divided into two parts. Okay. And so then in chapter four, we just dive right into medications and, and dysphagia and common disease states associated with dysphagia, common medications that can induce dysphagia. And all of this is concise, it's succinct, it's not uh, text that you have to read through to find the information. It's arranged in charts so that you're able to, you know, scan and access the information very, very quickly. And then finally, chapter five is the assessment of dysphagia. We talk a little bit about screening tools the importance of the CSC, outcome measures. And uh, my favorite is choosing an instrumental assessment. And we talk about endoscopy versus fluoroscopy. And we even, again, talk about compensation versus rehabilitation and all of this along the continuum of care. And I think it's just going to be a wonderful resource for new grads, for clinical fellows, for seasoned clinicians, even for clinicians studying for their board certification exam. I just think that it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful resource. And I'm so excited that it's, it's finally here. Yes, <laughs> I know. I, I know. Coming. I know. I know. I feel like you, you put it out into the universe that you wanted to do this oh so long ago. So. so to actually see it come to fruition is really really very rewarding. So I hope that it does well. And I hope that your listeners will give it a chance. Yes. Okay. So I do have a discount code for your listeners. All right. If they're interested in ordering it, they can order it at pluralpublishing.com. They can save 15% using the promo code AP2013. And that'll save you 15%. All right. Okay. Did you have a co-author with this book? I did have a co-author with this book. <laughs> Thank you. For that. You're so welcome. <laughs> I don't want to record this episode of Tiffany be like, uh, hello. <laughs> and my co-author, Tiffany Wallace. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's okay. Um, 
yeah. So, yeah. So we worked really hard to to develop a concise, easily portable reference guide for dysphagia clinicians. And so, again, the focus is on clinical application of normal and abnormal swallowing. And I, I just think it's a wonderful resource. Of course, I'm biased, but we did work really hard to put together something that we would have wanted and something that we hope clinicians will find useful in their everyday practice. And, and I love that, you know, your background is mostly with outpatient and hospital and her background is with home health and skilled nursing. So I love that you guys really just kind of cover all settings, cover the gamut with issues that come up in this book. Yeah, and I, I think that you're right. There's a, um, a uniqueness to home health and skilled nursing facilities that I just don't see. So Tiffany really brings a unique perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. All right. Any final thoughts about the book? Go get it. <laughs> yes. Yes. When is the official release date? Do you know? The release date is November 15th. November 15th. Is that right before ASHA? That is. ASHA is, is November 14th. So Okay. So right during ASHA. Right during ASHA. The plan is to have copies uh, available at ASHA. And we will be at the plural booth to answer questions and Yay! Books and just chat with everybody. So yeah, there should be some copies available at ASHA. If you want to come by, take a look and see if it's something that may interest you. Okay. But the discount code does not expire. So if you do come by the plural booth and take a look, you know, you can decide then you can have a hands-on look before you can try before you buy. Try before you buy. Mm -hmm. All right. But you can pre-order it now and that's code AP2013, but that doesn't expire. Okay. There was another good, good. promo code that did expire, but no, this AP 2013 does not expire. Um, and that is, that's a code for your listeners. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so, so much. And thank you so, so much for having me. All right. Have a great day, my friend. <laughs> Thanks, Teresa. You too. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.